singing. So uh, everything in Luke is really long. It's the longest book of the New Testament. That means there'll be times this semester where I read a lot of Scripture. Uh, That does not mean I will talk forever, though. So um, tonight we're going to read quite a bit from Luke 1. Follow along up there or in your Bible. We're going to start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Uh, They were really old. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But when the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And you must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the Lord, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel Answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled in their time, or will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I'm going to pick up in verse 46. And Mary said, sang, 
My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from the thrones, exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away, empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Song number one. One more song. Zechariah, verse 67. And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He's visited and redeemed His people, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunshine shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. All right. Some of you are thinking. I didn't know he was going to read the whole Bible. <laughs> let, me, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and pray you would show us great things in it. Show us especially your Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, uh, with clarity, we pray. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Before we jump in, could I have someone turn on some light up here a little brighter so I won't go blind? Anyone? Who knows what they're doing? Um, thanks. Sorry. Your eyes are young. My eyes are still good, but not young. Anyway, um, I read a lot, as you now know, and this is a very good reason for that. And one of the reasons for that is, if you know the Bible well, you'll know that before this happens, before this happens, there's a long, 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 long time in which absolutely nothing happens. Lots of words read. Lots of songs sung. Before this, there were 400 years of silence in which God did not speak. So, um, yeah, the other day I was walking out of Quad Bucks. Is there a name for that? Stop, like Starbucks on the Quad? We can't keep saying Starbucks on the Quad. There has to be something. And I'm proposing Quad Bucks. Any others? Let me know. I was walking out of Quad Bucks, took a right, ran almost straight into this guy, who's a big guy, bigger than me, walking down the sidewalk. Nothing extraordinary about him, except that he was singing loudly and confidently. It's a little unusual, right? Your first thought is, oh, something wrong with that guy. And then your second thought usually is you start smiling because you're like, oh, cool. Someone who's confident enough to sing. That's, he must be like a happy guy. Anyway, um, uh, outside of the shower or our car or... A football game where we sing the national anthem, or unfortunately, Sweet Caroline can't stand that tradition. Forgive me. Um, um, we did, we're not a singing people, and that's one of the reasons why David would say something like, "Hey, if you're here and you're not comfortable singing these songs, don't sing them. If you if you, if you want to sing them, sing them. If you don't want to sing them, don't sing them." Um, but here's a question for you: Have you ever been caught singing? 
I mean like really singing. Like deep from the heart. I mean this. Singing. Um, you know, you're bringing it because it means something to you. Now, if, if that's happened, it could be embarrassing for two different reasons, okay? Because of what you're singing. What you're singing really means something to you. The content could be embarrassing because you're singing about that special someone or something. Um, and, and you're making that known. Um, and also because the way you're singing shows your heart. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there. And tonight we're going to sort of like spy on two people, very different people who are singing their hearts out, deep from the heart. And uh, what they're singing is remarkable, lyrically, because they're both singing what they think is the best news ever. They're both singing what they think is the best news ever. And they're singing it from the heart. There's a message, this news they've received that has gone down and changed them. And now they cannot help but sing it. And uh, basically what they've discovered is this coming Savior that's promised to them gives them a new song. A new song to sing. And I think that's our, our point tonight. That, that the Bible promises, and Luke is saying there's a, a Savior who's come. And when we see him as he is and what he's come to do, it puts a new song in our hearts and in our mouths. So uh, really quickly, if you're a note-taking type, usually I'd have an outline. I don't have my act together tonight, sorry. Um, but we're going to talk about how we, we move from silence to song. And then how uh, there's a Savior to come who's unlike any other. And then lastly, we're going to talk about this new song that you can have to sing. So uh, this, the story begins with Zechariah. And Zechariah and his wife, they're really nice people. The text calls them righteous. These are the people you want for neighbors. And, um, except for they have no kid. Maybe, maybe you want them for neighbors because they have no kids. And um, we, we go to work with Zechariah. We, we, it's it's take, take us to work day uh, for Zechariah. He takes us all to work, and he's at the temple. There are actually 18,000 priests, okay? And so he only goes to the temple like once or twice a year. And the text makes it clear that by lot, he has chosen to do this very special thing. The text treats it very, you know, matter-of-factly. You might not realize this is a big deal. No, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that he goes into this special part of the temple and offers incense and prayer. And the text says while he does this, everyone at the temple, hundreds, thousands of people, they all stop what they're doing and they pray. Because this guy is before the face of God. Now, that's what's been going on. That's what's happening. And I need to stop real quick. Like, all the people are stopped in praying, so we're going to stop too. And explain what's going on behind the scenes. What's going on behind the scenes is that for 400 years until this moment, no one has heard from God. The Old Testament ends in Malachi with God making promises and the people in exile and then nothing. The people of Israel, who supposedly know and love God, they don't actually have the foggiest clue what God thinks of them right now. Because He hasn't spoken. No prophets, no scriptures, no nothing for 400 years. Silence. And then just like that, it's over. Zechariah is praying. All of a sudden, there's an angel there. And as you might admit or expect, he's scared to death. And, uh, and then this angel makes this amazing promise that he'll have a son. 
But not just a, any old son, a great son. He'll be great before the Lord, and it's good news. This son's job is to tell the world that good news is coming. That's good news. John is good news because he's a, a forerunner of even better news. That God is on the move, that eventually one will come who will make everything right. Now, unfortunately, Zechariah can't go out and share the good news because he doesn't believe what he heard. And um, so the people wait in silence even longer. 400 years, eh, what's another six months or nine months or so? So they don't know what's happened. The silence continues for them. But six months later, this same angel shows up 60, 80 miles north in this little backwater town of Nazareth. If you, that guy I met from the middle of nowhere in upper state New York, middle of nowhere, like... Nazareth makes your place look like a metropolis. No one wants to live in Nazareth. No one is like a tiny little mud hole. Uh, and, and, and the Lord sends his angel there to speak to a virgin and to make these promises that are almost incomprehensible in their goodness. And the silence is broken. And the promise is that of a son. Verse 31, a son named Jesus. The name is significant. It means the Lord is salvation. And so we have our two private conversations, 80 miles apart, making grand, fantastic promises about how God is going to work. The silence is over. Good news is coming. If you will, metaphorically speaking, the pebble has hit the lake of silence and the ripples are starting to move. And uh, so far, there's been no singing. And we skipped over a pretty cool part where... Mary goes to meet her now pregnant relative Elizabeth, that's Zechariah's wife, and uh, she's six months in. And uh, John, this promised baby, the forerunner of the king to come, he, he's not born yet, you know, he can't talk. He's still in the womb six months, so he does what he can do. He dances. He leaps for joy, the text says. He hears his Lord's mother's voice and he leaps for joy. And then the songs begin. Mary begins to sing about uh, this great one to come. So uh, Mary makes the subject of her song really clear right away in verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That word Savior, stop right there. That's the subject. She's actually talking about God and his promises about this son. In some ways, she hasn't quite figured it out yet, and it'll probably take her a long time to do so, but she knows a lot more than we do. Um, she realizes this son somehow is tied up in salvation. Zechariah knows the same thing. You see it in 68, 69, 77, that God is going to raise up a horn. That is a strong word, almost a battle word. Yay, someone figured it out. Of salvation. And so what we see is that this Savior to come is going to be a king like no one else. A king like no one else. When, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, he begins to describe this son to be born. Uh, we were parents who had our children, and we never knew what we were having. We like to be ignorant. We're really good at it, actually. Um, so we never knew what kind of child we were having gender-wise, and we never had a name picked out. It was like Christmas. It was basically going to be a good surprise either way. I didn't want to ruin it. So 
I was always pleasantly surprised. It was great. Um, but Mary is going to know an awful lot about her child before he's ever born. Starting in verse 31, uh, the angel Gabriel tells her all kinds of things about this child to be born. He has a name. His name is Jesus, meaning the Lord is salvation. And in verses 32 and 33, she begins to describe what his future role or job will be. The, the guy already has like a resume. Uh, he is to be the promised king, the Messiah, who has a uh, special relationship with God. You see it in verse 32. He'll be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. In other words... He's the guy that the, the faithful Jews of Israel have been waiting for for about a thousand years. The king who will come, who will rule justly and make everything right. That being said, their expectations were not big enough. Because the angel Gabriel expands it right here, right off the bat and says, No, no, no. Longer and bigger and better. A kingdom forever. That will have no end. Longer, broader, bigger, better than you imagined. That's the nature of this kingdom that this king will rule over. So we're talking about a king unlike any other king. Greater than Alexander, greater than Caesar, in power, in stature, in rule. And, verse 35, one who's holy. Verse 35, the angel answers. She's like, wait, time out. It's she could ask a thousand questions. It seems like Mary is a very practical sort. <laughs> You're going to have a baby. He's going to rule the world. Uh, he's in charge of everything. This is the fulfillment of a thousand years of... And you, it, I would have like a million questions. And she's just like, time out. I'm a virgin. Um, very practical question. You know? <laughs> um, so I get it. Uh, she's very practical. And she asks this question. And the angel responds, You're right. You're right. This will be different than any other time ever in human history. For this king to be who he's supposed to be and to have the character he's supposed to be, divine in nature and holy, this will take something supernatural. God will work supernaturally in, above, and through you that this child might be born like every man but unlike every man. With a pure, righteous heart from day one. And so what you have here then is the promise of a king greater than any other king. And if you know much about human history, actually that should scare you. Actually, great kings are pretty scary actually. You know, Stalin killed like about 100 million people. And you can just keep going. Um, but a great king who is holy. That is good. Loving. Righteous. Just. And Mary takes all that information about this son to be born and sums it up with one word. Savior. This king will be the one that saves. Will save me. This is my Savior. And so we have a king like no other who's going to bring a salvation like no other. And uh, you, you see it in her song. The salvation he brings is unlike any other salvation. It's cosmic in its scope. It's global. In verses 51 through 55, you see that he has um, this ruler reign that upsets and overturns things. It's sort of a reversal of the norms. He scatters the proud. He brings low the powerful rulers. He exalts the humble. He uh, feeds the hungry but sends the exploitive rich away. Uh, 
this is a king who will reign and rule in such a way that his kingdom will upset the sinful, oppressive institutions of the world. And, and that's why, frankly, if you don't know much about the world, um, there are places in the world where if, if you try to read a text like this, you would go to jail. Like today, if you go and try to read a text like this, you, you would be locked up. And it's been like that in a lot of places for a long time. Um, you know, there are a lot of places that would like to keep the Bible and the idea of King Jesus and the kind of rule that he would bring uh, completely out and away from people's hearts and minds because it brings something dangerous called hope for something better because they live under oppression. He's a king like no other, aiming to bring cosmic good change to the world. Um, but it's also personal. Big, global, macro, personal, vital, individual. Mary says about this God, verse 49, He's done great things for me. In verse uh, 50, His mercy is for those, parentheses, anyone who fears Him, who knows Him, who draws near and trusts in Him. His mercy can be individually received by those who trust in Him. God works on a very personal level as well. See that in Zechariah 2. Zechariah, verses 77, 78 says, He's talking about His Son. Be interesting to write you know, a poem about your son that gets in the Bible. Um, they both do. Talking about a son saying, Your job is going to be to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. The knowledge of salvation for the forgiveness of sins. We're talking about very individualistic heart issues here. God's concerned with people and their hearts and their sins and their thoughts. And He wants to change those things and forgive those things. He's working on a grand scale to dethrone oppressive rulers. And He's working right down here at the level of our hearts because He wants to change us as individuals. In other words, this king who's going to rule the world is not too busy for you. Not too busy for you. Not too busy to care about the things you do. Not too busy to care about the things you care about. Not too busy to forgive you and to love you. Now I need to take a break right here real quick. Because I've been talking about how great this king is. And a king like no other with a kingdom like no other. But uh, it's quite possible that some of you have some hang-ups. And you already said like, ah, you're a little crazy. Or you're thinking like, okay, I sort of believe this. But I know all these other people that think I'm crazy. And uh, so I'm going to talk about a couple of those things real quick. Uh, one is the uh, reality that this, this whole chapter is just scandalous, scandalously supernatural. Okay? We, we live in a time and place where we don't take things like angels, angelic messages, and virgin births very seriously. Or to be the norm. Okay? And, and it's sort of been that way in Western culture for about oh, 350 years or so. Um, so, I, I, I could have a long explanation about this, like the history of Western thought. We could do that some other time. Um, but what I want to say is, real quickly... Uh, you may think, like, I can't really believe this because all this supernatural stuff. What, what, my first response is, like, hey, read the text really carefully and you'll see that although supernatural things are happening here, this was not a world in which, like, people were unreasonable and crazy. When, when an angel appeared to Zechariah, he didn't, be like, he, he didn't say, like, oh, hi, it's good to see you again. Where have you been? 
No, he was scared to death because it never happens. And the same with Mary when the angel came and said, Hey, um, I have news for you. You're going to have a, ver- you're gonna have a, a child. She, you know, she had real questions about, of incomprehensibility. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. In other words, they, they thought a lot like we did. And, and God's breaking in here in a supernatural way was this unique breaking in into the, into the human history in order to begin a very important work. It was episodic, if you will. Uh, another objection you might have is uh, related. It's like, I don't know how to put it besides like the scandal of ancient historical particularity, which is a fancy way of saying like, hey, I'm not really sure I can buy the fact that like, a first century Jewish baby is like the thing. Okay, fast forward 30 years later, a naked Jewish man on a cross is the thing. Like I'm hung up on the fact that like something old a long time ago impresses me now and that's like the heart of human history. I don't get it. Um, there's lots of good answers to that question too. They'll talk about it. I actually think there's a, a, a bigger issue it's related to both of these, and it's this. We don't really think we need this. We don't really think we need salvation. Um, because we've got things under control. As a culture and as a people, we really don't think we need this. Because we know more. They were old, maybe well-intentioned, a little ignorant. But we've advanced. We know how things work now. And we don't need this. We've got it under control. And uh, what I want to say is, hey, I'm really glad to be a 21st century American. Uh, frankly, I'll, I'll give the whole thing. I'm really glad to be a 21st century white male American. I, frankly, like, I can pick a better thing to be if you want to get through life fairly easily. It's not fair, uh, but it's true. Um, but I think often we're living in this illusory reality, especially in college. Don't hear what I'm not saying. College is great. I love college. That's why I keep staying here. I'm 41. I'm like never leaving. Um, this is wonderful. Um, but it's really easy here to lose sight of what it's really like out there. There are moments here where it breaks in. And I've been here with some of you when it's broken in. But, but really, the real world is not like this. And I, and I, and I don't want to get too personal right away. But like this week, I sat down with a 40-year-old friend, a guy one year younger than me, who has like three to five years to live, maybe. Stage four melanoma. Can't control that. Three to five is actually a really good estimate. Uh, This week I learned that one of our alumni has a second tumor that needs to be removed. Like she graduated two years ago. Um, That's just like personal. Then you look national at the problems we have, which have been well advertised or well well documented over the last couple years. Uh, Racial, economic, political. And uh, usually in the election year, as a country, we're somewhat optimistic. We might be divided in our optimism. Like, yeah, this person's going to fix it. Or, yeah, this person's going to fix it. You know what? I don't get the feel that anyone's that optimistic right now. Uh, the bumper sticker that sort of best summarizes everything I've seen was uh, I saw yesterday on a, on, a, on a SUV and it said it was one of those like bumper stickers that's clearly uh, election oriented. It had all the right colors, red and blue and white, and it said "Everyone sucks, 2016." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, uh, I sort of feel that way." Uh, and no one is really optimistic that our candidates are going to fix the problems we have, right? And then we look at the world. And man, I can sit here for hours and talk about all the things we can't fix. But I'll just settle down into Syria for just a minute. 
Where for six years, these people who have been fighting dozens of groups, fighting each other, where just yesterday, someone, and it's not clear if it was the government or a rebel faction, dropped a chlorine gas bomb on a town. And they're not sure who did it. People died. Or two weeks ago, like if you want it in picture form, what's wrong with the world, you can't fix it. This little boy, you probably saw it, his name is Amran Daknish. He's probably three or four years old. He's covered in dust. He's covered in blood. He's sitting in an ambulance without a family. And you're like, can't fix that one. Can we? So we can't fix the problems in the world, but we think we can. And then you think, well, at least I can control myself. I'll start here. Be the change you want to see in the world. Did that sound sarcastic? Sorry. <laughs> um, it didn't mean it to be. I just can't help being sarcastic sometimes. Um, no, I get it. I think it's not a bad place to start. You know, start with yourself. But man, I, I, I know the reality of the human heart, my own and others, to know that trying to change my own heart is just as hard as changing the world. It's just as hard. So how can Mary and Zechariah be so confident? If you look through the text really carefully, and we're not going to do it because we'll be here forever, uh, they do this really interesting thing, both of them, where all the verb tenses are in a past perfect. They're talking about two people who've not yet been born in such a way that they've already come and already done it. The arm of the Lord has scattered. The uh, horn of salvation has been raised up. Like, it's already done. And they're, doing, they're speaking this way because they have supreme confidence in what God is providing. Uh, this is an illustration from a, a pastor named Joe Novenson who was talking about this passage. It stuck with me. And so this will require some imagination for you. You have to, like, leave this time and place. And imagine, actually, this is hard for you. Uh, actually, imagine being a Nazi soldier. That's pretty hard. <laughs> okay. A Nazi soldier... Uh, in, in 1944, uh, in the barracks, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the, what do you call those things? The uh, bunkers, looking out to sea. And you've known for months that they're coming. You've dug in, you've prepared, you know an invasion's coming, you don't know where, you don't know what, um, but you know it's coming. And you begin to see it on the horizon of the ocean. And what you see, you can't really count them, but what you see is 5,000 landing assault vehicles. 5,000 boats carrying 160,000 troops. And all the time, hundreds and thousands of planes flying overhead. And you would probably have like one or two thoughts. One would be like, oh, this might be the day I die. Uh, but the second thought would be something along the lines of, I think they mean business. This is it. I think they mean business. And that's exactly, I think, what Mary and Zechariah are sort of doing. They're taking all this information that the angel Gabriel has given them about the sons to come and what they're supposed to do and what this king is going to be like. And they look at the world and all its brokenness because they know it. And they look at the king to come and what he's like and the salvation to come. And they say, I think he means business. Like, He's coming. He, he can do this. I am confident that this is the answer to our problems. It's good news. And so they sing. So they sing. This is the last point. 
And I'm going to simply ask the question, this song that they sang, remember, both these people uh, in this chapter have moved from like doubt. Zechariah's like, I don't get it. Okay, you don't get it. You don't believe me. Six months ban on talking. Um, and, and Mary's incomprehensibility, like, I don't get it. Uh, to now singing this wholehearted, whole-minded song about what God's doing. They've, they've moved. They've grown already. And what do you see is, oh, I'm just going to focus on Mary a little bit. You see her singing from her heart. In verse 46 and 47, she says, My soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices. See that? My soul, my spirit. These are the words she had available to her in her language for saying, Way down deep in there, where I, where I am my core being, that's where this is coming from. She is singing with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you will. This is, and it's, this right here is a theology lesson. And there's like 10 verses, there are like 13 to 15 Old Testament texts mixed in. That's what I mean with her mind. She's sharp. She's young, but she knows her Bible. She knows her Lord. But she's singing her knowledge from a heart filled with love and devotion and faith. It's from her heart. And in verse 46, what she does is she says, I magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, some of you know a lot more about magnification than me. Today, I actually sat down and like looked up the history of the magnifying glass scope thingy. What do you call that? See, I can't even think of it. I spent like five minutes trying to think of what you call a magnifying scope and realized it's not a magnifying scope. There's a telescope. There's something else. There's a magnifying glass. So you know a lot more about these things than I do because I haven't done any science in the last 22 years. Um, but, but, what Mary's doing, very similarly, is taking something that seems small, but is very significant, maybe easily overlooked, and making it large. She's taking something that almost no one else can see at this point, because it hasn't been made public, and it's incredibly important, and she is expanding it. She is blowing it up with her words that others might know because it needs to be seen, because it's deserving, because it's worthy, because it's the best news ever. She is with this song wholeheartedly magnifying the greatness of God's King who's to come. Um, and frankly, that's something that we do naturally, not magnify the King to come, but magnify things with our words. We do that all the time, actually. Um, we're pretty good at it. it. It usually comes gushing out of us. Maybe not like getting caught in a song, but when we love someone, it comes out. When we think something is worthy, it comes out. When we think something is unlike anything else, the best new thing ever, it comes out. It comes out of our mouths. We, sh- we can't help but share it. We magnify that thing so other people can know it. And more often than not, uh, what we magnify most often is ourselves. What we magnify most often is ourselves. Because uh, we talk about our work, and we talk about what we have to do, and we even manage to find ways to talk about the hard things in a way that like makes us look better. The humble brag, suffering so much, working so hard, haven't slept in a lifetime, my life's so hard, but I'm still crushing it. Like We're really good at finding ways to like kick dirt on ourselves in a way that still magnifies us. Um, and the reality is, our song will never be like hers. 
will never be like hers unless somehow the knowledge we have of God becomes personal. Some of us can't magnify the Lord like she does because we don't know him. Like we just don't know anything about him. And I, I, I get that. It's hard to like make large and clear to others something you're not sure you believe in. And so I, and here I would say like, well, I'm glad you're here. And I would invite you to use that uh, device, that magnifying scope glass thingy, to carefully investigate what we're doing. This is for you. What? I'm going to sit here and tell you what Jesus is like and what he did for like the next 14, 16, 18 weeks. This is a great time to study it. Uh, but for many of us in the room, that's not the problem. We know all kinds of things about God. We do. We know all kinds of things about God. But it doesn't seem to do stuff here. And when we sing, we're not sure we always believe it. And when we, we, we frankly are filled with ourselves. And um, it has to get personal. It has to get personal in such a way that when Mary says in verse 51, look at this. He sown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. When she says something like that, we don't think about other people like, oh, the proud people. Oh, those proud people. That guy down the hall, the girl in my bio E classes, stuck up, conceited, proud people. No, no. Getting personal means we look at that and say, God knows me. He knows how proud I am. He knows that almost every single day I live the entire day like I think I don't need Him. Almost every day I think I can do life without Him. Almost every day I think I'm right and other people are wrong. Almost every day I think I'm sufficient for life and work and being awesome all by myself. Friends, that's called being proud. Being proud. We think we're better than other people much of the time, and we think we don't need God. And I read this and I say, I am perhaps, part of me wants to say, like, I am the most competent person I've ever met. Like, part of me really wants to say that. And the right part of me that knows better says, I am perhaps the most proud person I know. And then we read the words of Zechariah in verses 77 and 78, where he says to his son, it's just baby, not yet born. Son, your job is to make known salvation in the forgiveness of sins. And we look at that and say, that's it right there. The way I get this song, the Lord, the knowledge of this great King into my heart and out of my mouth is this. I am not called to perform perfectly. I am not called to have everything right. I am not called to know everything right or do everything right. He has sent... A son to make me right. I have sins that need to be forgiven and he's made a way. That's for me. This is not about just bad leaders out there and a few people that need forgiveness. This is about me. This is for me. This has to get personal. Otherwise, your song will always be about you. So I was thinking about this the other day. Maybe it was today. It's been a long day. Um, if I could give you some truth serum that... Uh, Made you, this sounds a little freaky, but stick with me. <laughs> if I can give you this true serum that made you sing what was actually in your heart, what you thought about yourself, what would you sing? And some of you are thinking, like, Derek, that true serum is called alcohol, and I know that. <laughs> um, but um, if I could give you this thing and you were to start singing what's in your heart, what you think, 
what songs would you sing? And I would actually love for somebody to come and tell me because I don't know, because I only listen to good music. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But here's some ones I thought some of you might sort of be singing. A few of you last week were probably singing something like Everything is Awesome. Yes, it's a kid's movie, but it was an awesome week. It was great. And now you're starting to sing songs like um, Ray LaMontagne's song, Trouble, 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 Worry, 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 Worry. And some of you are singing the, the 21 Pilot song, Stressed Out, um, which I also have to admit, uh, this sort of puts me out of sorts. This may be like 21st century Christ, Christian blasphemy. Uh, they, they sound like the chipmunks to me. I can't really do it. But, um, but you're starting to feel that. And um, there are lots of other songs you could be singing. But I feel like there's a good chance that underneath all those songs, if you cut all the way down to the heart, there's another song. There's another song there. Rumbling deep beneath the heart. And uh, it's a great song. You should go listen to it. 1988, De La Soul. Me, Myself, and I. For most of us, deep down, our daily song and thought is about me, me, me. And you know what? There's a great chance you really are great. Almost everyone I've ever worked with for eight years has been wonderful. I love spending time with you. I'm here to serve you. But you are not worth the song of your life. You're not. The song of your life belongs... To the great king, unlike any other, who brings a salvation like no other. And when you realize that what he's done is for you, and that this great king will ultimately, because of the tender mercy of the Lord, give his life for you, and that goes deep down, then it begins to change your heart, and it begins to change your song. 